Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for another week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I've got a great panel today to talk about a variety of issues, including the fact the Georgia legislature is back in session. They began at 10 o'clock this morning. It's an election year session. Election years always have a big impact on how things develop under the Gold Dome. We'll talk about that and a lot more on the show today. It's Monday. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us on Mondays and Fridays and is here today. You read him in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays, uh, but of course he oversees the uh, Political Insider blog at AJC.com, which I'm I'm beginning to realize just how much work it is to put that thing. It's a pretty comprehensive look at what's happening in, we, in Georgia we, politics. We are, we are the vacuum cleaner of Georgia politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, across from you, Jim Galloway, and if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you can see the show there, is uh, Karen Owen, uh, professor of political science at West Georgia University. Welcome to your first show back after the holidays. So happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Glad, Glad to, to be have back. you here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Amy Steigerwald is next to you, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Were you at a conference? You were talking about being in San Juan. Was this a political science group or something? It was. It was the annual meeting of the Southern Political Science Association. Oh, very. How many people show up or something? About 1,200. And that was just this past? That was just this past year. Yeah. Because I thought that when you asked if Karen was there and you weren't, right? I didn't attend this year. Oh, okay. Okay. It's a little bit out of my reach to get to Puerto Rico. Missed the earthquakes in San Juan, which Amy got to experience a little of. Yes. um, It was oddly gentle, especially compared to the ones I had been through in (laughs) California. So I guess that was a positive. A gentle earthquake. It sounds like it'd be a movie. Uh, Stephen Fowler, GPB Radio's political reporter, is here. Uh, Stephen, uh, you're back from an even bigger thing than just the Christmas holiday. You got married in the last few weeks. That's right. Got married Saturday, January 4th. Just came back from a week at Disney World. And you know, Disney World is a lot like the Georgia Gold Dome. There's characters everywhere. Oh, God. <laughs> well, you've been working on that, haven't you? Tov to you and your wife. <laughs> look, at, look at that shiny ring on his, on yeah. his finger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Stephen. Um, all right. Let's do this. Jim, let's start with uh, really, I guess, what is the big uh, national political story today? Uh, and that's um, Cory Booker, New Jersey senator, has dropped out of the race. He he never quite found his footing. I want to read a quote uh, that he gave when he dropped out and then, and then ask you to comment on it as we talk just a little bit about this. He said, I believe to my core that the answer to the common pain Americans are feeling right now, the answer to Donald Trump's hatred and division is to reignite our spirit of common purpose, to take on our biggest challenges and build a more just and fair country for everyone. I've always believed that. I still believe that. Um, he ran a very positive campaign about unity, fair play, really talking about love. And, and you know, I'm not sure this we, is the if, year for it. If we were going to elect a national pastor yeah. instead of a president, uh, I think he'd be, he'd be running away with yeah, it. Yeah, which is exactly what a number of the people who followed him on the campaign trail were suggesting as well. But, but here's the thing, Amy. Uh, we, are, we have now... He was the last really highly visible African-American mm-hmm. in the race. Duval Patrick is still in there, the former governor of Massachusetts. But he's a, he's a rather low-profile prof- candidate for president at this point. Definitely. And, and one thing that his camp, that Cory Booker's uh, campaign manager had mentioned was that, you know, we always sort of ask two questions, you know, can, uh, should someone be president, but also could they be president? And the problem is that not all the candidates actually have to answer that second question. 
right? We've only had one African-American male ever be president. We've never had a female be president. Um, so we certainly have never had a woman of color be president. And there really is kind of this question of what are voters willing to accept, right? And a lot of the studies have shown that not everyone is necessarily comfortable. It, when we sort of talk about prototypical leadership, uh, people picture a white male. And so any candidate that sort of goes against that runs into a lot of issues on the campaign trail. So, Karen, what that means, among other things, is that tomorrow night when the Democrats meet in Des Moines for uh, their uh, new debate, their next debate, uh, there will be all white people on the stage. A couple, yes, fortunately, women candidates, but no people of color. Yes, and I think that's interesting given the Democratic Party right now and the makeup of that and the voters who are wanting they're going to have a new look. But, you know, thinking about Senator Booker, I think you mentioned the part about timing. Mm. And I think this was not his time for what his message was because it seems like the Democratic Party, you have these several lanes of the progressive wing where Sanders and Warren are doing well, and then you've got this moderate, and he never could kind of break into his lane that would resonate with voters. Yeah. I should point out he wouldn't have qualified for the debate right. in any case, right. nor and, did he for the last. Some, right, and you have some people uh, citing that as a reason for his with, withdrawal. Yeah. I think a bigger reason was 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 this very interesting Washington Post poll, poll <clears throat> that, that came out just as the weekend broke, of, uh, and it was a poll of African American Democrats. And and nationwide, Biden is carrying 48 percent. Yeah, Stephen, Biden is so far ahead of everybody among African-American and, and, voters. And, 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 and uh, Cory Booker was polling 4 percent in fifth place, tied with Bloomberg. Yeah. Stephen? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I've seen on the ground and heard from other political reporters that have been in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, but also places like South Carolina, is that... Uh, Biden has emerged as this kind of pragmatic candidate for black voters, especially older black voters. But there is a generational divide that we're seeing with Bernie Sanders picking up a lot of steam. When he was here in Atlanta, Bernie Sanders had a rally at Morehouse. But, you know, Cory Booker was one of those candidates when he was here in Atlanta that really connected with people on an individual, personal level, snapping selfies at a phone bank that you and I were at, but that didn't translate in this crowded field with a lot more theatrics and a lot more uh, policy platforms being pushed that just... Uh, you know, didn't find his lane. One of the things that I read this weekend uh, that uh, among of all the political news I read all over the place, and I frankly at the point where I don't remember if it was 538 Washington Post, but it was it talked about, Jim, uh, basically what you're suggesting here. There were po there's polling in two states, Iowa and South Carolina, that shows the incredible uh, diametrically opposite kinds of outcomes that we're seeing in the polling. In Iowa, of course, uh, we know now that we've got f four white candidates bunched right at the top. Uh, in South Carolina, y you, have, uh, uh, you have Joe Biden, but with a huge surge of African-American support behind him, whereas in Iowa, there's no not enough black voters to make a difference in the race. Right, right. And, and then and, and, and so you've got this you've got this little awkward set of timing that Biden's hoping that he can bridge because you've got you, you have you'll have Iowa, New Hampshire and then South Carolina where he's where he, if, if he doesn't win South Carolina, I think I, I think that causes, raises some serious questions. Then you move into Nevada, which has yes, it has a large mi minority vote, but it's 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 I think it's primarily Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And then you have Super Tuesday and that's where Bloomberg expects to cash in because yeah. you've got huge states. But yeah. you also have places like Alabama and you, you have you have some 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 states with very, very heavy. The African-American yeah. turnout. Bloomberg, who is now, uh, according to a number of different news reports, said, yeah, I'll spend $1 billion, if not to win the White House myself, to make sure Trump does it. That's going to be interesting to watch unfold. All right. Let's talk about Georgia, if we can. Amy, I know that you, you, Stephen, and you, Jim, were all down at the Capitol this morning. Uh, the first thing we should talk about is, Stephen, it went completely dark down there. What the heck happened? Some might call it a metaphor. Others say <laughs> yeah. a power surge. But just before Governor Kemp was set to give an announcement about human trafficking, uh, the power went out in the Capitol. They the say it was Capitol a whole city dark. block, which is the size of the yeah. Capitol. But the power went out. Uh, things were on backup generators, so things were delayed. But there was a lot of chatter about there being a metaphor and asking if the state paid its Georgia power bill and things like that. <laughs> so added a little bit of humor to what was 
usually just kind of a very vanilla uh, symbolic ceremonial I, day. What I want to know is, Amy, did this happen before or after the preacher of the day talked in either the House or the oh, Senate? It was after. It was after. Oh, it was after. Oh, all right. Yeah, at least it was after the in. Senate side. So I was watching the Senate side. So it was after the Senate side. <laughs> and, it, and it put an early end to the day. Yep. And, and 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 like Stephen said, it's something we can learn from. <laughs> well, it turns out the people on our lawmakers team, which originates at the Capitol uh, every night starting tonight, they've had to bring everything back here to our, our studios in Midtown Atlanta. So it's a small matter, but an interesting one. Jim, I want to turn to um, to an issue that we have not talked about with any enough detail uh, in the last week or so leading up to the session. And, and I thought... It was, as I said in the note that I sent out to all of you, it's such an important issue. And I want to make sure we give it the attention it deserves, which you did in a column that appeared in the Dead Tree edition of the paper yesterday, but has been online for a few days now. And that is this, the measure that Sharon Cooper, Cobb County State Representative, a Republican, wants to push, and that's to deal with the maternal mortality, I think crisis is a fair word, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we have our, our, our maternal mortality rate is, is, is as high, at least as high as, as, as we're, in the, we're in the last 10 states. You know, I don't know. I don't know who are. And I'm sure most of our competition is in the deep south. Uh, we have uh, uh, it's uh, the death rate for African American. This is this is this is where it, it really really cuts. African American women, particularly in rural Georgia, they are the ones that are bearing all the risk here. Uh, among African American women, you were, we exper- were experiencing in in I think 2012, 13, and 14, 47 deaths per 100,000. The national average is 17. Uh, for white women in Georgia, it was 14, so it's three to four times as high, and 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 access to health care is is a good part of it. Uh, th- this was a special special committee that's set up by Speaker Ralston. Uh, Sharon Cooper was one co-chair. Mark Newton of of Augusta was another one, and their recommendation is that that uh, the state extend uh, Medicare. Uh, coverage for for uh, for poor women for a year up to a year after after giving well birth. I'm glad you pointed out a year because Karen we should say these deaths are not necessarily the result of childbirth these aren't happening in childbirth these are strokes that uh, take place uh, 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 later they are at times women who do bleed out in in the aftermath of giving birth There's but organ, heart fl- disease or, organ, organ failure, failure. Yeah. so this is so the notion of extending Medicaid uh, makes, if, if you agree with this, makes sense because you're talking about conditions that can come up well after the child is born. Right. So when Jim mentions that the fact that this is affecting, you know, women of color disproportionately or others in the state in the rural areas, one thing is that, you know, a lot of women can get access to the care up into the childbirth or then, a you know, 30 to 60 days after. But it's really that six months to one year when you still need to have very good postpartum care. And these women need that so that that we can decrease this mortality rate. And I think it's very important that the state has to address what's going on with these women in access. So if you have a local public health department that's getting state funds, why aren't they doing better care for women afterwards? It doesn't end, you know, right when that baby is one month old. These women need access to care and continue treatments and help so that they can make sure that they're being protected and cared for. I learned something, as I always do when I read Galloway columns, that I really don't think I knew. Um, You make the point when when Karen talks about local public health clinics, Mm state-funded, state-run public health clinics, it, I And you make the comparison that these are a little bit like how we look at counties running their own elections. Absolutely. That, that the state really has very little control, although they're funding these operations, over how they're operated. I never realized that. Right, right. Every county will set its own agenda. And if you've got a county that is not making a priority over, of, of, of postnatal or, or prenatal care, then, uh, then uh, that's that can be a problem. Okay, so well, that Stephen is separate from the notion of whether or not we need to extend Medicaid benefits, and this is a tough year. 
to take that on, according to the governor who says the budget is already stretched thin. Right. And Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan had reporters in his office earlier today, and he was asked about maternal mortality rates. And uh, one of his big pushes is trying to find uh, technology solutions that can help bridge that gap. He mentioned telehealth as uh, things to look at and um, some other things that to bridge that health care gap that the state could do, but did acknowledge that the budget is tight and things cost money. And when you have the larger conversation about Medicaid expansion, even carving out that exception or that specific area of maternal mortality is still going to be an uphill conversation on both sides of the aisle. But but look, look I, I, and, 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 and Amy, you ch- chime in on this if, if you can. We, uh, in, in 2019, uh, the state legislature passed pretty much the, the, the most extreme anti-abortion bill mm-hmm. that you could possibly get. It's, it's in abeyance right now uh, on the order of a federal judge. But if, if, you, if you've got a state policy that could be encouraging young mothers to consider abortion as a means of self-preservation, that, that argues that you you're not pro-life, as, as pro-life as you think you are. I think one of the things that we have done not very well in this country is that we don't talk about the burden of physically of being pregnant and afterwards. Mm. The word is labor to give birth, but we sort of talk about it as a joke, right? We don't discuss the issues that women face afterwards. We don't take very seriously the ideas of postpartum depression. We don't take seriously the issues that mothers go through. There's very little checkup. So even if you have major surgery, which is what a C-section is, you are seen maybe a week later and that's it. Right. Nobody's checking in to make sure you're recovering for that. Infection rates are very high and it doesn't have to happen. I mean, one of the things that was mentioned in Jim's column, places like Finland have three deaths per 100,000. Right. We're talking about an average of 47. Right. These are things that are preventable. It's about care and typical. And this is one of the few places where I think I've ever made like a policy comment that it really does go into this. And it also means that, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, it is much more expensive if the mother dies, right? If we want to talk about where we're going to sort of save money and things that we sort of that cost benefit analysis, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to just provide a little bit of health care and keep people alive. This Cooper Newton uh, committee uh, found that in, in, in that three year span, 60% of the deaths were, were preventable. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Karen, uh, one of the things Sharon Cooper said, and I assume she gave you a direct, an interview uh, that, you're, that I'm quoting from now. She said to Jim, I'm a nurse. I believe in doing triage. You treat the person that is the most in the most serious trouble and can be saved. You find and treat them first. So with that in mind, uh, I we all get when people have to tighten their belts when money is uh, uh, harder to come by. But when you read the Galloway column and look at the hard numbers here, it, it feels to me like even from just a political point of view, just pure political thinking, a legislator who says, no, sorry, not going to go there. We don't have the money. It'll just have to be the way it is for the time being. That in, just as a political matter seems like a completely untenable position. Yes, absolutely. These are talking about women who are voters and they make up a large percentage of our state. And you're talking about just kind of not helping them. Absolutely not. Not a very good move at all politically. And I think, you know, further, you know, Jim's column talks about the idea that Cooper and this committee talk about there may have to be compromise because of the cut. But if you're talking about one year coverage, that may sound like a lot of money, but that's not in the grand scheme, as Amy talked about, when there's so many other added costs if a woman does die. And I think going back to Stephen's point, when uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan talked about like telemedicine, thinking about this as a comprehensive strategy would be smart political thinking. It's not just about the money, but how can you encourage these public health departments to vary their hours for working women or to make that access available very, you know, via the telecommunication or telemedicine or something like that. There has to be other avenues provided. And I think politicians can't walk away from it this session. Yeah, Stephen, uh, Sharon Cooper says, uh, if I can't get a year, give me at least six months. But again, we're going to have to watch how the budget battles play out this session. 
Well, you know, um, one thing we can get about the budget battle is we've got the first 14 days of the legislative session mapped out from the House. And all of next week is going to be budget hearings, block grant hearings, things like that. So the budget is going to be a big priority. So these conversations, these uh, that lawmakers are having, that Sharon Cooper is having and others about issues like maternal mortality, we'll see pretty quickly how much uh, weight is being put behind saving them in the budget or being victim to the you know, cuts. I, all right, which leads us into talking a bit more about the budget in a couple of minutes. But uh, before we get there, we'll take a break. But, Jim, I just want to say, I mean, you write a lot of really meaningful uh, uh, pieces for your twice-a-week column. From my point of view, this is one of the most powerful columns I've seen from you, and it, it really hit me very hard, and I suspect that that's true of everybody else in this room right now. I mean, I was really struck by the comment of how many of these deaths were deemed preventable, because that's what I think really brings it home. Like, these are women who are dying in our state who simply didn't have to, and if they had just gotten a modicum of care, they would still be here with us. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're talking about kids who are shuttled off into the foster care system, mm -hmm. this is where you start. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how they try to address this problem. Uh, all right, let's do this. Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way, and when we come back, let's talk a bit about where we're headed with the budget battles that are they're already underway down at the Capitol. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> Time to clean up the garage? Start with that vehicle you no longer need and donate it to this station. It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. And you could even get a tax deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. And thanks very much for your support. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. Support for GPB comes from generous listeners like you. And Cigna. Cigna is committed to improving the health, well-being, and peace of mind of those they serve along with their communities, just like here in Georgia. Cigna, together all the way. Learn more at Cigna.com slash take control. GPB has been recognized by the Georgia Associated Press Media Editors for Best Newscast and Best Website. We were also honored for our staff coverage of Hurricane Michael. GPB News. Stand with the facts. Back on uh, Political Rewind, Karen Owen, Amy Steigerwalt, uh, Stephen Fowler, and Jim Galloway in the studio with me today. Hey, before we go on to talking about the budget, and as long as we talk about something you wrote for the AJC, let's just quickly touch on a really unprecedented uh, uh, move on the part of your editors. This morning's AJC had a front page Editorial took up probably three quarters of the front page of the AJC, urging legislators to do something. At, it, it, it's a follow-up to the extraordinary reporting that your uh, investigative uh, people did on uh, on uh, uh, the tr the troubles that we have in uh, extended in um, affordable assisted, assisted living. Assisted living. <laughs> Thank you. And, I was and, searching and for the word. And nursing homes and and, and and personal care homes and just the lack of reporting, the lack of accurate reporting. But what's interesting about this, Stephen, to the best of my knowledge, although certainly we understand why the AJC would tr be trying to support the reporting it did. I know. Of, do you, are you aware of any legislation that is now in the works to address any of this? We, we you know, among other things, is the question is what kind of fines, uh, what kind of you know, what kind of standards would you apply before you shut a home down? To the best of my knowledge, none of that is out there at this point. Not yet, but you know, reporting that the AJC and others does has had results in things like I know, for example, uh, the tax commissioner reporting that the AJC has done about tax commissioner fees and stuff. There have been lawmakers that have proposed drafting uh, legislation to address that because of this. So it wouldn't be surprising, especially with a prominent front page editorial, with the editorial weight of the newspaper behind it, if some lawmaker somewhere in the state house doesn't see that and take up action. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Sharon Cooper. 
Yeah. Uh, she's right. the chairman of Health and Human Services. That's my, okay, I'm, I'm glad you said that out loud because that's what we're hearing. I mean, I wonder if you're Sharon Cooper, though, how much you, you want to take on in a session where you're already trying to do maternal Look, mortality. It, it's the, the nursing home lobby and, and the elderly care lobby in, in, in the legislature is, is, is very, very strong. Well, and that's the issue. There, this is yes. there is going to be nothing harder than I would think to pass legislation, given the lobbyists, on how to find new ways to regulate uh, assisted living homes, and that we've seen this sort of thing with senior care and all that before. It's tough. It is very tough. I mean, part of the issue is that you're you're coming up against uh, concerns with uh, staffing, right? So it's not just oversight and the things that seem. So there, on the one side, it could be simply increasing fines for things that are already on there, on right, which is sort of a it's sort of an easy fix in one, which I mean, certainly nobody would be happy with, but is maybe less onerous than if they also sort of start to change some of the requirements, right? A big one um, that I've seen a lot of people talk about is that you have to have twenty uh, that overnight uh, care, it can be one staff member per 25 patients, which can, you know, spread a lot of thin because the reality is that emergencies don't really care what time of day it is. Yeah. Um, Okay. So before the break, Karen, Stephen reminded us that the second week of the legislative session is usually carved out for budget hearings. All of the agency heads come in. They suspend business in the chamber. Doesn't count against the 40 days, obviously. And uh, and begin making their pleas to save as much of their budgets as possible. This year, it's going to be particularly interesting to watch that process, I think, from two perspectives. One, because there are agencies that want to, are desperate to save as much money as they can. But two, the way in which Governor Kemp uh, put these cuts in place, the 4% cut was already applied to the current budget, not even talking about the, the budget coming up the next fiscal year, which is a 6% cut, but he kept lawmakers out of the process of those 4% cuts, and now now they're getting their chance. <laughs> well, and as the session starts and they take this time off, the only thing that the legislature has to do is pass the budget. Yeah. So they're going to have to work hard. And I think they do want to have a say. I mean, not just the part of the you cuts. I think <laughs> say, right? They don't want the governor to walk away with just his ideas. But I think that, you know, one part is not the cutting, but it's looking at what's going on with the revenue in the state. Mm-hmm. So wh- what are they going to be able to address as far as how to raise revenue and, and secure the revenue coming in? I think that's one big play. I'd like to see how the lawmakers are going to tackle that through legislation, if it's working out these tax credits or if it's coming up with some new idea maybe for revenue raising. Well, I, I, I'm, you know, Jim, I, a couple of weeks ago I said on this show that we were getting we were looking at the, the reports from the governor's office about revenue news and whether they're up or down. And I said, given that Governor Kemp has said one of the reasons he needs these cuts is because there's concerns about whether revenue is going to continue at a steady pace. I said, I had could not think of a time in my career here in Georgia that I've seen the governor's office appear to put out sort of you know, gladly these reports saying, oh, revenues are down 1.3%, 1.4%. But, well, we, it, it, but two hours before we came on the air today, the new report says they're up 3%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just taking a little bit of that pressure off. I mean, you've got and, – and, and at the same time, you've got you've – got, uh, 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 a lot of legislators. I think the the, the initiative is going to come out uh, out of the Senate again. Is is, is to, you know for a, a lowering of uh, of the state income tax by another 025 percent. And 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 what's the the problem here is that you've got a. We are not Florida. We're not Tennessee. I mean, we we don't. We're, Florida, you know, we, we before on on air we were talking about trips to Disney World. You know, they've got all that tourist income. We don't have that. Uh, we our, our our state income is on uh, property taxes, state income taxes, and uh, state sales taxes. And sales taxes are fine. Uh, the income it's a, it's a three-legged stool, and you start fooling with one of those one of those legs, and the whole thing can can get a little bit wobbly. Stephen. So that uh, the most recent revenue numbers that came out says state tax collections were up 3% in December. But if you take the first half of the last fiscal year from July to December, we're at basically $32 million more than where we were last year, which is not going to be enough to account for growth and is not going to be enough to account for all of the spending. Now, you mentioned the tax cut. I think 
I would look out for messaging from Democrats and others against the tax cut, looking at the amount. That tax cut would handicap the state by about $500 million or so, which is about the cost of the governor's teacher pay raise, one of his signature priorities. So those two numbers may be melded together into one as an argument to not have the tax increase or, or the tax cut. So that's something to be looking out for. And the legislature is probably going to move quickly to do something in addition to the budget cuts. I know one of the things that the Senate discussed today was a bill that would require marketplace facilitators to start collecting taxes. And these are things like third-party tax collection, Uber, Uber, Lyft, things like that. Okay, Amy, you're nodding. I'm glad you made it clear you're talking about something like Uber and Lyft because I didn't understand what marketplace collection means at all. Now I get it. They mean that. They also mean like third-party sellers on Amazon and things like that, right? So it's all of those. And I think perhaps what I find most interesting is that I – there, it appears that the lead up to this session, there's been much more um, sort of open discussion or at least openness to having discussions about ways to raise revenue, right? So on the one hand, you've got that the Supreme Court, right, handed down a decision which now makes it possible for there to be things like uh, sports betting and casinos. And so that sort of started as a push that year. And then this year, we've got the uh, the coalition, right, of owners of the various uh, major franchises in Georgia who are pushing for that. There's been discussions about revisiting the jet tax fuel credits or jet fuel jet tax fuel credits, ta- um, <laughs> as well as credits that are given towards uh, the film and television industry. Yeah. And so that's been interesting to see the, the openness to that discussion. I, I, I want to back up just for a second because Steve and Jim mentioned the um, teacher pay raise. I don't have we're going to hear from the governor on Thursday. He's going to give his state of the state speech Thursday morning. Uh, and we'll get a better sense. He hasn't. We haven't heard a lot, at least to the best of my knowledge, about what his specific agenda uh, is going to be this session. So presumably we'll hear a lot more about it then. And by the way, as long as I'm talking about it right now, we'll, of course, carry, as we always do, the governor's state of the state uh, speech on GPB TV and radio and on our digital platforms as well. But I haven't gotten a handle on whether he's actually looking for the remainder of this extra $3,000 in the teacher pay raise right. this session, or whether he's going to push it down the road, look for a little more this time? Is he, I'm not quite clear. Well, Do we well, know? Well, it just, you know, it, it, politically, it would, might make sense to maybe to wait to get the final burst in, in uh, a re-election year. Yeah. So I will, I will say that. But last, Which would be this year. <laughs> Uh, but but no, not for the governor for Kemp's the governor. re-election. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Of course. But but uh, and and we've also gotten a signal from from uh, uh, House Speaker David Ralston. He had a session with reporters last week where he said that three thousand dollars is going to be a, a pretty pretty. That's, this year, it's going to be a, a real, real tough thing. Yeah, they have to, now I, that may be bargaining. Exactly. That's, that's that's you know that's bargaining between the House and the governor's office, but you know I, I think you might see something fractional. Yeah. The reason I kind of jumped and thought, Karen, yeah, of course, you're going to bargain if you're the speaker on stuff like this. Uh, But part of that is because the uh, legislative leaders, especially on the House side, Ralston especially, they haven't been convinced from the start that the budget cuts were as necessary as the governor says they are. And so, of course, they're going to try to hold his feet to the the fire whenever they can on the things he really wants. Yes. And I think the point of compromising here on if you can give a little bit to the teachers, right? So the legislature members, they're going to have to run for re-election. The governor may not be up right now, but they are. And so the teachers may not be saying, hey, it was just Kemp who promised this. You guys passed that budget, right? You're responsible responsible for this as well. And so can you give us something? So it'd be interesting to see if Ralston can say, you know, back to the governor, we've got to do something because I've got a membership base that's about to run for re-election. You know, uh, I noticed, Amy, you were talking about how the four major sports teams, Atlanta United, the Braves, the Hawks and the Falcons, all their leadership has come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, we have a show coming up later next week. I'll have more details about where we've got two of those leaders uh, mm. coming in to talk about uh, their proposals for sports betting. But I noticed uh, just today for the first time that there's now a an event down. Jim, are you aware of this at Atlanta Motor Speedway 
where they're hoping there's a there's a, a a group that is hoping to build a casino at the Atlanta Motor Speedway, and we're going to have oh. a group of legislators making a tour down there. Do either of you know anything about this? No, that's news to me. Yeah, but, but I will. Yeah. But I, I will tell you that I mean it's 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 interesting because you've kind of got the you, the the sports uh, sports industries and the the casino backers at, at odds. They're not on the same page here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole uh, argument for sports betting is that it it, it offers no new buildings, it, no, you know, you you right. don't have any center, you you have no center of uh, right. of of activity where right. where bad things might might happen around it. Right. Uh, and there's also a question. I think I'm right, Stephen, as to whether sports betting requires a constitutional amendment. It may not. Casinos and 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 horse racing, paramutual wagering, definitely would. There's definitely a question, and I think overall what you're seeing is, you know, at the end of the day, there's math. The state has to pass a balanced budget. The priorities of state spending equals a certain amount, and the revenue has to meet that. You know, in, in there's a quote in the AJC where they interview uh, someone, who, uh, a representative who says, Georgia doesn't have a revenue problem as much as a collection problem. Yeah, that's Chuck yeah. Some people would argue that Georgia has a revenue problem and a collection problem, and some would argue that the state has a spending problem. So, you know, you've got multiple angles looking at the state budgetary process, and we'll see over the next 40 legislative days which view wins out with how the state budget works. Well, it, it, sooner than you, you're right, it will play out over 40 days. But sooner than that, Karen, we're going to see what the state sets as its revenue estimate for 2020, which has a lot to do with what they do with the budget. And if revenues are slow, what are we going to see the governor set his goal, his um, uh, a budget at for this year? Well, historically, right, the governor's always kind of used that conservative estimate. and I That's that's the biggest power a governor has. Yes. Absolutely. And so I, I think you'll probably see that again right now, given this climate. Interesting, just to kind of go back on the sports betting, I'm interested to know, you know, how Georgia voters are feeling at this point, knowing that there's all this discussion of budget cuts and adjustment of the revenue and how the state's kind of looking economically. Are voters okay with this? You know, in 1996, it was like push the lottery three, right, with Zell Miller, if we go back, and that was not a quick, easy sell to voters, but it did come about once that was latched to education and hope scholarship. So is this betting and casinos, are we going to be able to tie it to a social, like an education or health, or is it just going to go into the greater pot of the state revenue? Well, I think we know that any measure that would come out would, in fact, be tied to a certain percentage of the revenues going to the hope scholarship. That is my understanding as well, that I think they want to do a similar thing, continuing um, tying it to that. But, but Democrats are insisting that it be means tested, that it go to – It can't to, just be a, 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 another uh, a scholarship for people who already have enough money to put their kids through college. Right, right. And, and, but, but also what you've seen, it, you, you've seen people start tying it to, to rural health care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 There's, there's, there's a good yeah. bit of talk about that. And, and of course, you know, that's, that, that's, that's kind of intended to, to get after uh, a religious-based opposition mm-hmm. to, to the gambling because that's, uh, that's it, 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 it would separate one from the other. I, Stephen, Karen makes a really good point. It may be that you need something in addition to giving people the chance to go out and lose their money on uh, various forms of gambling. And, and when you go back and, and looking at Zell Miller, it's a great example of that. One of the brilliant decisions that Zell made when he announced that he was going to do a lottery, and Galloway will remember this, is he immediately tied it to three things, hope scholarships, technology development, of which GPB was an enormous beneficiary because that's what we do, provide education, digital education to much of the state, and pre-K. And he learned a lesson from where Florida had gone wrong. Florida uh, earmarked their money for education too, but they put it into the general education Mm -hmm. budget so that legislators were able to steal from that budget and use it for other purposes. Zell earmarked it specifically. So maybe Karen's got a point. You've got to find some other incentive to get people who may be a little reluctant to support it. Well, that's what you when you look at any spending or any sort of new program or things, it's, you know, where does it come from? Or if it's new revenue sources coming in, where does it go? And so uh, getting casino gambling through 
you know, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, as well as the Senate Majority Caucus said that that's not one of their priorities. But to do something like that, earmarking money, you know, making sure that the money goes where it says it goes is going to probably have to be part of the equation to make sure that it gets enough votes to pass either chamber. We should also remember that uh, Zell had a hard time, as Karen points out, passing that referendum. It passed by a relatively narrow mark, 50-something, 3 to right. 40. Right. I mean, it could eight, easily have like gone that. the other way, and then we would have been looking at a, a one-term Zell Miller. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he had struggle enough, as it was for re-election, because of that. Um, we're also watching the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Ralph Reed's organization here, Virginia Galloway being their biggest no relation to this one. Uh, 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 most outspoken public advocate, uh, they're going to fight this ferociously. Most decidedly. I mean, I think what's going to be interesting is if we start to see sort of a separation of especially casinos from things like sports betting, that a lot of people don't see sports betting in the same way as kind of problematic. It's you don't have to build you don't build infrastructure for it. Lots of people are doing it anyways. Right. The number of people that, you know, that do like a fantasy football league or fantasy baseball or things like that are uh, much smaller and sort of separating it out that it doesn't seem to be tied to the same types of things that casinos are necessarily tied to. But I it'll be interesting to see if that argument is them. But they're definitely already I mean, they're they are really not happy about it. And I think they're also um, there is some debate uh, from the Legislative Council about whether or not the constitutional amendment is required. We know it's required for gambling and horse racing. We're a little less clear if it is for sports betting. But my understanding is that the Legislative Council suggested that they should do it just in case. But that's also well, where the give, sports Because if you're a legislator, exactly. Karen, you said what are the voters thinking? If you're a legislator, you'd kind of like your own constituents to weigh in so that you they can take the burden off of you. Well, right. And yes. I even think the religious groups are going to have to gauge in this state right now in 2020, which is a very different demographic and yeah. generational group in Georgia than it was yeah. When we were looking at the lottery originally, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just recent research out about how more Americans, especially the younger generation, are less religious. They're spiritual. Part of that spirituality is tied to sports. Mm-hmm. They get just as excited over a win of their favorite yeah. team than they do going into a church or a temple. So I think even the religious groups are going to have to know what their base is really pushing and what they want and then translating that into letting the lawmakers know that. Uh- Okay, I want to admit something about myself. Am I the only one in this studio? Am I one of the only ones in our listening audience who doesn't quite know how sport? What is sports betting? How do you bet on sports? Well, there's Stephen, you probably know. Well, you know, so I, I'm in a fantasy football league. Yeah. So you put the money in, and whoever wins, you know, you pick players and points. There's betting for specific outcomes, like mm-hmm. if you bet, you know, the Atlanta United would go undefeated in the season, and they did, you could win a certain amount of money. What do you do? It online? There's online. It's online sports betting. There's different sites that do things. So, like, if you bet the Braves would choke in a playoff series, you could make enough money to go buy an Atlanta United ticket or something like and that. And you can bet quickly, too. I mean, am uh, I right? Can, There's real-time betting. You can betting? bet on, on who's, mm-hmm. going to, who's going to hit a home run this 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 inning. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are areas that it would be off-limits, for instance. You wouldn't want, uh, you wouldn't want on, uh, on, uh, to bet on who's going to drop the first pass in a football game or who's uh-huh. going to right. – uh, because right. uh, or, or something that can – Something that something can, incentivizes a player to – Exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, OK. So with that in mind, does these websites already exist. Are people just doing it illegally at this point? Well, it, you know, the websites exist, but it's not necessarily a Georgia-regulated industry or well, entity. Right. And, there, and, and thus there's no income coming from it. Right. So, you know, oh, if you, you know, if right. you if you put a bunch of money down on sports betting, Georgia gets none of that benefit. Right. Because oh. there were four states that originally had various forms of betting and gambling, right? And, and that was and, what and, the and that was that law. was allowed by federal statute. Exactly. Right. And, so they, the they protected court, it, but then and, the Supreme, the Supreme court, court struck court it down. Said, no, no, you, And you since have, then, 19 states have expanded what has been allowed in their state. And really what we're debating over on some level is not the legality of the gambling, but whether or not Georgia's going to collect revenue from from what Georgians are already doing. Yeah, the best, the, the the most common reason I've been given is Tennessee. They passed the legislation mm-hmm. le- this this last uh, last year. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, there is no bigger fan of Atlanta United than you are. Uh, I would like to think not. Maybe my son, he might be object to. I do you like the idea of being able to 
you know, place bets on Atlanta United successes? I'm a terrible person to ask about this. Um, I will say, I mean, I know that my husband has placed, you know, bets in, you know, I didn't Las really Vegas, want you to but... answer. That was just, I always yeah. like, because you and I are both dedicated exactly. to the five stripes. I just wanted to get a chance to give Gavin you a shout Gavin would out. like there to be fantasy soccer. He, he did fantasy football, not for money, and he wants there to be fantasy MLS as well. So, I mean, that could be fun. All maybe. right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in just a minute. In the 1890s, Wilmington, North Carolina had a thriving black middle class, a large black electorate, and black representatives in local government. But that ended in 1898 with a bloody campaign of violence and intimidation by white supremacists. On the next Fresh Air, journalist David Zacchino. His new book is titled Wilmington's Lie. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3, right here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Catching up on errands? Got your hands full doing chores or making a nice dinner? Well, we can't help you clean up the kitchen, but GPB can keep you company. And we can help keep you informed and entertained while you're at it. All you need is your voice. That's right, your smart speaker is also a radio. Go to gpb.org smart, where we'll walk you through how to set it up. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, just a few minutes left. Jim, on Friday's show, we talked for a minute about the Democratic Senate race, race number, mostly race number two, the Johnny Isaacson seat. And uh, we did mention briefly that, um, well, we know that Ed Tarver has now said he wants to jump in this right, thing, right. former state senator, former Southern District U.S. attorney, African-American, first African-American Democrat to express interest in either race number one and number two. We also mentioned that there's been a lot of talk about Raphael Warnock. And in fact, today in, uh, your, in the jolt, You've led with an item that says that it feels like Raphael Warnock, or there are indications he may be getting closer and closer yeah, to he's, running. He's, he's doing a lot of things that you have to do if you're if you're going to going to launch launch a campaign. And uh, Stephen here picked up on on one thing that I had completely missed. Tell, first of all, we should remind people: Raphael Warnock is the pastor at historic Ebenezer Baptist Church. Right. Yeah, and you know the, these these things don't necessarily mean as much, but somebody over the weekend registered a domain name. WarnockForGeorgia.com. Really? Hmm. Don't know who it could be. Right. It could be Raphael Warnock. But, you know, so, sometimes campaigns or just people uh, register domain names and things to lock them up so you don't get trolled, see what happened to John Ossoff and other people's like that. But other times, uh, it's kind of a little sneak peek into somebody launching a campaign. There's websites and other places that'll track new domain names. But WarnockForGeorgia.com, if that is his campaign website, we'll see in if and when he launches. Yeah, what we're hearing is if, if there's a decision to be made, it won't be made until after MLK Day. Well, uh, it better Monday. not be because that day is going to be – we talked about it Friday. You're going to have Kelly Leffler. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, the woman that he would be running against. I can't imagine that if you're Matt Lieberman – I mean, you've got to want to be there that day if, you've, if you're if announced you're Tarver, candidate. If you're if you're mm-hmm. If you're on, in, in Senate race number two, Teresa uh, Tomlinson. Yeah, race number one. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Sarah Riggs and right. Nico or John right. Ossoff. Right. You'll be there too. Um, here's an interesting thing, Karen and Amy. I, it, it, Stephen mentioned earlier in the show that we were both over at Ebenezer Baptist the day after the Democratic presidential debate when a number of the presidential candidates showed up because Fair Fight Action was doing a little f- vo- phone banking uh, uh, for registering voters. And um, I, I asked and, – and, and Pastor Warnock uh, uh, came in for a while and I pulled him aside and I said, what's happening with you? And uh, he said, well, I, I have to admit that it's appealing to me. And I said, but your, consti- your, your congregants, your congregation, they would hate to lose you. They, they love him. And he made an interesting comment. He said, if I were going to take this on, I would do it. I would use Adam Clayton Powell as my model, the, the great African-American Harlem uh, congressman, because he kept his – uh, he, his role in his church. And that's a really interesting thing to contemplate. I think so. I mean, I think that was a great example to 
talk to you about. I think that um, he does have a great appeal. I would imagine the service on MLK will be another way for him to be on the you know stage to kind of have people understand who he is and where he's at. Um, you know, to the domain name, Campaign 101, right? You got to lock in your name yeah. and you got to lock in your domain. So it'd be interesting definitely to see if that's he's the one who purchased it or if someone else has grabbed well, it. I mean, what's interesting is some of the other variations of that, you type it in and it goes to this domain is like parked by GoDaddy.com. But WarnockForGeorgia.com, when I went on it, it said uh, you do not have access or permission to access this file, which usually means there's something being developed there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bill. To, to to Karen's point is, if you if you, if you are Warnock and you're going to do this, this, then I think the argument you point to is is that of Martin Luther King Jr., yeah. who was pastor of the church. His dad was also he was co-pastor with his dad, but he also uh, was conducting what what we would call a a very important political campaign, yeah. a civil rights campaign, yeah. at the same time. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, because there's nobody who can inspire people on the stump the way a Raphael Warnock could. I mean, this guy is one of the most powerful speakers you could ask to go listen to. I, I've always said on this show, people should go. Uh, and now that he's going to be a Senate candidate, maybe I should stop suggesting this because uh, I don't want to sound like I'm promoting him. I'm not. But he is a powerful speaker. He is. And that certainly would be I mean, there's we, we've talked a lot on this show about uh, who is going to run in the Isaacson race, right, against uh, Kelly Leffler. And, I mean, certainly that is someone that would be a good get for the Democratic Party because they don't it, – it, no, we're not entirely sure what's going on. There appears to be a lot of wrangling going yeah. behind the scenes. I think they are very much trying to uh, come out with a candidate that the uh, the DSCC, which is the Democratic Senate uh, Campaign Committee, would be behind. And they really want to limit what's going to yeah. happen there so that they can kind of funnel. Meanwhile, you – you were at the Wild Hogs. Were you at the Wild Hogs Supper too? You didn't go. Good for wait. Well, you're a new newlywed. You don't need to be doing that. So Kelly Leffler showed up. I understand. What was that? Did you see her? Did you get a no, chance to I, talk I was, to her? No, I, I kind of exited quietly before that. Uh, she she made a late appearance. She was appropriately mobbed. I don't think that she said anything uh, of of note. She was mostly there for uh, to, to to meet people and to be seen, escorted by the governor. I would uh, imagine. Yeah, he, and 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 by the way, to that point, we should mention tomorrow. Ivanka Trump is going to yep. be at a South Fulton mm. event, yep. Yep. Uh, a, a human a human trafficking event, where the the, the governor it's a, it's a, it's a gubernatorial event, so Kemp will be there, but Leffler will be there as well. Oh, of course she will. Well, you know, an interesting side note about Kelly Leffler. When I got back from not checking in on work after being, I noticed that Kelly Leffler bought a Kia that she said she bought after touring the West Point plant, and mm. she's going to be using it to drive all around Georgia during her campaign, and that's a a subtle touch that I think, you know, sends a message about how she envisions her campaign stuff. That's, what, that's a Sonny Purdue move. That's a Sonny mm-hmm. Purdue. He bought, he, he, uh, he, he, he when, when we, when we got that plant, he shifted all the, for a short period, he shifted all the, the gubernatorial transportation vehicles uh, to, to Kia. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, when you want to know what cars they're driving, just ask Fowler and Galloway. They... Exactly. We'll have <laughs> yeah. to see if she does a Kelly do list. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. We're out of time uh, for today's show. And uh, I'm really glad. Karen Owen, thank you. It's great to have you back. Amy Steigerwald. Thank you. Always, have, have a, always glad when you two are here with us. Stephen, have fun down at the Capitol. Oh, yeah. We'll be listening for your reports on GPB Radio as the session continues underway. And Jim Galloway, I'll see you back with me on Friday on Political Rewind. Looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. In the meantime, we'll be back here at 2 o'clock with another show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then. 